1: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: The People of the Pit by A. Merritt This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The People of the Pit by A. Merritt Recording by Mark Nelson North of us, a shaft of light shot halfway to the zenith. It came from behind the ragged mountain toward which we had been pushing all day. The beam drove up through a column of blue haze whose edges were marked as sharply as the rain that streams from the edges of a thundercloud. It was like a flash of a searchlight through an azure mist and it cast no shadows. As it struck upward, The five summits were outlined hard and black, and we saw that the whole mountain was shaped like a hand. As the light silhouetted it, the gigantic fingers of the peak seemed to stretch. The bulk that was the plane of the hand to push. It was exactly as though it moved to thrust something back. The shining beam held steady for a moment then broke into myriads of tiny luminous globes that swung to and fro and dropped gently. They seemed to be searching. The forest had become very still. Every wood noise held its breath. I felt the dogs pressing against my legs. They too were silent, but every muscle in their bodies trembled, their hair was stiff along their backs and their eyes fixed on the falling phosphorescent sparks, were filmed with terror glaze. I looked at Star Anderson. He was staring at the north where once more the beam had pulsed upward. The mountain shaped like a hand. I spoke without moving my lips. My mouth was dry as though Lao Tzai had poured his fear dust down my throat. It's the mountain we've been looking for he answered in the same tone. "'But that light! What is it? Not the aurora, surely,' I said. "'Who ever heard of an aurora at this time of the year?' He voiced the thought that was in my own mind. "'It makes me think something is being hunted up there,' he said. "'That the lights are seeking—an unholy sort of hunt. It's well for us to be out of range.' The mountain seems to move each time this shaft shoots up,' I said. "'What's keeping it back, Star? It makes me think of the frozen hand of cloud that Shan Nadur set before the gate of ghouls to keep them in the lairs that Iblis cut for them.' He raised a hand, listening. From the north and high overhead there came a whispering. It was not the rustling of the aurora that rushing, crackling sound, like ghosts of winds that blew at creation racing through the skeleton leaves of ancient trees that sheltered Lilith, this whispering held in it a demand. It was eager. It called us to come up where the beam was flashing. It drew. There was in it a note of inexorable insistence. It touched my heart with a thousand tiny fear-tipped fingers, and it filled me with a vast longing to race on and merge myself in the light. It must have been so that Ulysses felt when he strained at the mast and strove to obey the crystal-sweet singing of the sirens. The whispering grew louder. "'What the hell's the matter with those dogs?' cried Star Anderson savagely. "'Look at them!' The Malamutes, whining, were racing away toward the light. We saw them disappear among the trees. There came back to us a mournful howling. Then that too died away, and left nothing but the insistent murmuring overhead. The glade we had camped in looked straight to the north. We had reached, I suppose, three hundred miles above the first great bend of the Kuskokwim toward the Yukon. Certainly we were in an untrodden part of the wilderness. We had pushed through from Dawson, at the breaking of the spring, on a fair lead to a lost mountain between the five peaks, of which, so the Athabascan medicine man had told us, the gold streams out like putty from a clenched fist. Not an Indian were we able to get to go with us. The land of the Hand Mountain was accursed, they said. We had sighted a mountain the night before, its ragged top faintly outlined against a pulsing glow. And now, by the light that had led us, we saw that it was the very place we had sought. Anderson stiffened. Through the whispering had broken a curious pad-pad and a rustling. It sounded as though a small bear were moving toward us. I threw a pile of wood on the fire, and as it blazed up saw something break through the bushes. It walked on all fours, but it did not walk like a bear. All at once it flashed upon me. It was like a baby crawling upstairs. The forepaws lifted themselves in grotesquely infantile fashion. It was grotesque, but it was terrible. It drew closer. We reached for our guns and dropped them. Suddenly we knew that this crawling thing was a man. It was a man. Still, with that high-climbing pad-pad we swayed to the fire. He stopped. "'Safe!' whispered the crawling man, in a voice that was an echo of the whispering overhead. "'Quite safe here. They can't get out of the blue, you know. They can't get you, unless you answer them.' "'He's mad,' said Anderson, and then gently to this broken thing that had been a man. "'You're all right. There's nothing after you.' "'Don't answer them,' repeated the crawling man. "'The lights, I mean.' "'The lights!' I cried, startled even out of pity. "'What are they?' "'The people of the pit,' he murmured. He fell upon his side. We ran to him. Anderson knelt. "'God's love!' he said. "'Frank, look at this!' He pointed to the hands. The wrists were covered with torn rags of a heavy shirt. The hands themselves were stumps. The fingers had been bent into the palms, and the flesh had been worn to the bone. They looked like the feet of a little black elephant. My eyes traveled down the body. Around the waist was a heavy band of yellow metal. From it fell a ring and a dozen links of shining white chain. "'What is he? Where does he come from?' said Anderson. "'Look! He's fast asleep, yet, even in his sleep, his arms try to climb, and his feet draw themselves up one after the other. And his knees! How in God's name has he ever been able to move on them!' It was even as he said, "'In the deep sleep that had come upon the crawler, Arms and legs kept raising in a deliberate, dreadful climbing motion. It was as though they had a life of their own. They kept their movement independently of the motionless body. They were semaphoric motions. If you have ever stood at the back of a train and watched the semaphores rise and fall, you will know exactly what I mean." Abruptly, the overhead whispering ceased. The shaft of light dropped and did not rise again. The crawling man became still. A gentle glow began to grow around us. The short Alaskan summer night was over. Anderson rubbed his eyes and turned me a haggard face. "'Man!' he exclaimed. "'You look as though you've been sick!' "'No more than you, Star,' I said." That was sheer, stark horror. What do you make of it all?' "'I'm thinking our only answer lies there,' he answered, pointing to the figure that lay so motionless under the blankets we had thrown over him. "'Whatever they are, that's what they were after. There was no aurora about those lights, Frank.' It was like the flaring up of some queer hell the preacher-folk never frightened us with. "'We'll go no further today, I said. "'I wouldn't wake him for all the gold that runs between the fingers of the Five Peaks, nor for all the devils that may be behind them.' The crawling man lay in a sleep as deep as the sticks. We bathed and bandaged the pads that had been his hands. Arms and legs were as rigid as though they were crutches. He did not move while we worked over him. He lay as he had fallen, the arms a trifle raised, the knees bent. I began filing the band that ringed the sleeper's waist. It was gold, but it was like no gold I had ever handled. Pure gold is soft. This was soft, too, But it had an unclean, viscid life of its own. It clung to the file, and I could have sworn that it writhed like a live thing when I cut into it. I gashed through it, bent it away from the body, and hurled it away. It was loathsome. All that day the crawler slept. Darkness came, and still he slept. But that night there was no shaft of blue haze from behind the peaks, no questing globes of light, no whispering. Some spell of horror seemed withdrawn, but not far. Both Anderson and I felt that the menace was there, withdrawn, perhaps, but waiting. It was noon next day when the crawling man awoke. I jumped as the pleasant, drawling voice sounded. "'How long have I slept?' he said. His pale blue eyes grew quizzical as I stared at him. "Uh, "'A night, and almost two days,' I said. "'Were there any lights up there last night?' he nodded to the north, eagerly. "'Any whispering?' "'Neither,' I answered. His head fell back, and he stared up at the sky. "'They've given it up, then,' he said at last. "'Who have given it up?' asked Anderson. "'And once more—' "'The people of the pit,' the crawling man answered. "'We stared at him, and again, faintly, I, for one, felt that—' queer, maddening desire that the lights had brought with them. "'The people of the pit,' he repeated, "'things some god of evil made before the flood, and that somehow have escaped the good god's vengeance. They were calling me,' he added simply. Anderson and I looked at each other, the same thought in both our minds. "'No!' said the crawling man, reading what it was. I'm not insane. Give me a very little to drink. I'm going to die soon. Will you take me as far south as you can before I die? And afterwards you can build a big fire and burn me. I want to be in such shape that no hellish wild of theirs can drag my body back to them. You'll do it when I've told you about them.' he said as we hesitated. He drank the brandy and water we lifted to his lips. "'Arms and legs quite dead,' he said. "'Dead as I'll be soon. Well, they did well for me. Now, I'll tell you what's up there behind that hand. Hell!' "'Listen, my name is Stanton.' Sinclair Stanton, Class 1900, Yale, Explorer. I started away from Dawson last year to hunt for five peaks that rose like a hand in a haunted country and ran pure gold between them. Same thing you were after? I thought so. Late last fall my comrade sickened. I sent him back with some Indians. A little later— My Indians found out what I was after. They ran away from me. I decided I'd stick, build a cabin, stock myself with food, and lay down to winter it. Did it not badly. It was a pretty mild winter, you'll remember. In the spring, I started off again. A little less than two weeks ago, I sighted the five peaks. Not from this side, though, the other give me some more brandy.' "'I'd made too wide a detour,' he went on. "'I'd gotten too far north. I beat back. From this side, you see nothing but forest straight up to the base of the hand. Over on the other side.' He was silent for a moment. "'Over there is forest, too. But it doesn't reach so far. No.' I came out of it. Stretching for miles in front of me was a level plain. It was as worn and ancient looking as the desert around the broken shell of Babylon. At its end rose the peaks. Between me and them, far off, was what looked like a low dike of rocks. Then I ran across the road. The road? cried Anderson incredulously. The road," said the crawling man, a fine, smooth stone road. It ran straight on to the mountain, oh, it was a road all right, and worn as though millions and millions of feet had passed over it for thousands of years. On each side of it were sand and heaps of stones. After a while I began to notice these stones. They were cut, and the shape of the heap somehow gave me the idea that a hundred thousand years ago they might have been the ruins of houses. They were as old-looking as that. I sensed man about them, and at the same time they smelled of immemorial antiquity. The peaks grew closer, the heaps of ruins thicker. Something inexpressibly desolate hovered over them, something sinister, something reached from them that struck my heart, like the touch of ghosts so old that they could be only the ghosts of ghosts. I went on, and now I saw that what I had thought to be the low rock range at the base of the peaks was a thicker litter of ruins. The Hand Mountain was really much farther off. The road itself passed through these ruins and between two high rocks that raised themselves like a gateway. The crawling man paused. His hands began that sickening pad-pad again. Little drops of bloody sweat showed on his forehead. But after a moment or two he grew quiet. He smiled. They were a gateway, he said. I reached them. I went between them. I sprawled flat, clutching the earth in awe and terror, for I was on a broad stone platform. Before me was sheer space. Imagine the Grand Canyon, three times as wide, roughly circular, and with the bottom dropped out. That would be something like what I was looking into. It was like peeping over the edge of a cleft world down into the infinity where the planets roll. On the far side stood five peaks. They looked like a gigantic warning hand stretching up to the sky. The lips of the abyss curved away on each side of me. I could see down perhaps a thousand feet. Then a thick blue haze shut out the eye. It was like the blue you see gather on the high hills at dusk. But the pit—it was awesome—awesome awesome as the Maori's gulf of Ranelac that sinks between the living and the dead, and that only the freshly released soul has strength to leap, but never strength again to leap back. I crept back from the verge and stood up, weak, shaking. My hand rested against one of the rocks of the gateway. There was carving upon it. There, in sharp outlines, was the heroic figure of a man. His back was turned. His arms were stretched above his head, and between them he carried something that looked like a sun-disk with radiating lines of light. There were symbols on the disk that reminded me of Chinese. But they were not Chinese, no, they had been made by hands dust ages before the Chinese stirred in the womb of time. I looked at the opposite rock. It bore an exactly similar figure. There was an odd peaked headdress on both. The rocks themselves were triangular, and the carvings were on the side closest to the pit. The gesture of the men seemed to be that of holding something back, of barring. I looked closer. Behind the outstretched hands and the disks I seemed to see a host of vague shapes and plainly a multitude of globes. I traced them out vaguely. Suddenly I felt unaccountably sick. There had come to me an impression. I can't call it sight, an impression of enormous, upright slugs. Their swollen bodies seemed to dissolve, then swim into sight, then dissolve again. All except the globes which were their heads and that remained clear. They were unutterably loathsome. Overcome by an inexplicable and overpowering nausea, I stretched myself upon the slab, and then I saw the stairway that led down into the pit. A stairway! we cried. A stairway! repeated the crawling man as patiently as before. It seemed not so much carved out of the rock as built into it. Each slab was perhaps twenty feet long and five feet wide. They ran down from the platform and vanished into the blue haze. A stairway, said Anderson incredulously, built into the wall of a precipice and leading down into a bottomless pit. Not bottomless, interrupted the crawling man. There was a bottom, yes, I reached it he paused again. I reached it. He went on dully. Down the stairway. Down the stairway. He seemed to grip his mind. Yes, he went on firmly, I went down the stairway. But not that day. I made my camp back of the gates. At dawn I filled my knapsack with food my two canteens with water from a spring that wells up there by the gateway, walked between the carved monoliths and stepped over the edge of the pit. The steps run along the side of the pit at a forty-degree pitch. As I went down and down I studied them. They were of a greenish rock, quite different from the granitic porphyry that formed the wall of the pit. At first, I thought that the builders had taken advantage of an outcropping stratum, and had carved the gigantic flight from it. But the regularity of the angle at which it fell made me doubtful of this theory. After I had gone down perhaps half a mile, I stepped out upon a landing. From this landing the stairs made a V-shaped turn and again ran on downward, clinging to the cliff at the same angle as the first flight. After I had made three of these turns, I knew that the steps dropped straight down to whatever they went in a succession of such angles. No strata could be so regular as that. No, the stairway was built by hands. But whose? And why? The answer is in those ruins around the edge of the pit. Never, I think, to be read. By noon— I had lost sight of the lip of the abyss. Above me, below me, was nothing but the blue haze. Beside me, too, was nothingness, for the furthest breast of rock had long since vanished in the same haze. I felt no dizziness and no fear, only a vast curiosity. What was I to discover? some ancient and wonderful civilization that had ruled when the Poles were tropical gardens? A new world? The key to the mystery of man himself? Nothing living, I felt sure. All was too old for life. Still, a work so wonderful must lead to something quite as wonderful, I knew. What was it? I went on. At regular intervals, I had passed the mouths of small caves. There would be three thousand steps and then an opening, three thousand more steps and an opening, and so on and on. Late that afternoon I stopped before one of these clefts. I suppose I had gone then three miles down the pit, although the angles were such that I had walked in all fully ten miles. I examined the entrance. On each side, was carved the same figures as on the great portals at the lip of the pit. But now they were standing face forward, the arms outstretched with their discs as though holding something back from the shaft itself. Now, too, their faces were covered with veils and there were no hideous shapes behind them. I went inside the cave. It ran back for twenty yards like a burrow. It was dry and perfectly light. I could see outside the blue haze rising upward like a column. I felt an extraordinary sense of security, although I had not been conscious of any fear. I felt that the figures at the entrance were guardians, but against what? I felt so secure that even curiosity on this point was dulled. The blue haze thickened and grew faintly luminescent. I fancied that it was dusk above. I ate and drank a little, and slept. When I awoke the blue had lightened again, and I fancied it was dawn above. I went on. I forgot the gulf yawning at my side. I felt no fatigue and little hunger or thirst, although I had drunk and eaten sparingly. That night I spent within another of the caves, and at dawn I descended again. It was late that day when I first saw the city. He was silent for a time.
0: Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: "'City,' he said at last. "'The City of the Pit! But not such a city as you have ever seen, nor any other man who has ever lived to tell of it. The Pit, I think, must be shaped like a bottle. The opening before the five peaks is the neck. But how wide the bottom is, I do not know.' Thousands of miles, maybe. And what may lay behind the city I do not know." I had begun to catch little glints of light far down in the blue. Then I saw the tops of—trees, I suppose they are, but not our kind of trees—unpleasant reptilian trees. They reared themselves on high, thin trunks and their tops were nests of thick tendrils, with ugly little leaves like narrow heads, or snake heads. The trees were red, a vivid, angry red. Here and there I began to glimpse spots of shining yellow. I knew these were water, because I could see things breaking through their surface, or at least I could see the splash and ripple, but what it was that disturbed them... I never saw. Straight beneath me was the City. Mile after mile of closely packed cylinders that lay upon their sides in pyramids of three, of five, of dozens, piled upon each other. It is so hard to make you see what the City is like. Look, suppose you have water-pipes of a certain length and first you lay three of them side by side, and on top of them you place two, and on these two one. Or suppose you take five for a foundation, and place on these four, and then three, and then two, and then one. Do you see? That was the way they looked. And they were topped by towers, by minarets, by flares, by fans and twisted monstrosities. They gleamed as though coated with pale rose flame. Beside them, the venomous red trees raised themselves like the heads of hydras, guarding the nests of gigantic jeweled and sleeping worms. A few feet beneath me, the stairway jutted out into a titanic arch, unearthly as the span that bridges hell and leads to Asgard. It curved out, and down, straight through the top of the highest pile of carven cylinders, and then it vanished through it. It was appalling. It was demonic. The crawling man stopped. His eyes rolled up into his head. He trembled, and again his arms and legs began their horrible crawling movement. From his lips came a whispering— It was an echo of the high murmuring we had heard the night he came to us. I put my hands over his eyes. He quieted. "'The things accursed,' he said. "'The people of the pit! Did I whisper? Yes. But they can't get me now. They can't!' After a time he began as quietly as before. I crossed that span. I went down through the top of that... building. Blue darkness shrouded me for a moment, and I felt the steps twist into a spiral. I wound down, and then I was standing high up in I can't tell you what. I'll have to call it a room. We have no images for what it is in the pit. A hundred feet below me was the floor. The wall sloped down and out from where I stood in a series of widening crescents. The place was colossal, and it was filled with a curious mottled red light. It was like the light inside a green and gold-flecked fire opal. The spiral stairs wound below me. I went down to the last step. Far in front of me rose a high-columned altar. Its pillars were carved in monstrous scrolls, like mad octopuses with a thousand drunken tentacles. They rested on the backs of shapeless monstrosities carved in crimson stone. The altar front was a gigantic slab of purple covered with carvings. "'I can't describe these carvings. No human being could. The human eye cannot grasp them, any more than it can grasp shapes that haunt the fourth dimension. Only a subtle sense in the back of the brain grasped them vaguely. They were formless things that gave no conscious image, yet pressed into the mind like small hot seals, ideas of hate, of combats between unthinkable monstrous things. Victories in a nebulous hell of steaming, obscene jungles, aspirations and ideals immeasurably loathsome. And as I stood I grew aware of something that lay behind the lip of the altar fifty feet above me. I knew it was there. I felt it with every hair and every tiny bit of my skin. Something infinitely malignant. Infinitely horrible, infinitely ancient. It lurked, it brooded, it saw me, it threatened, and it was invisible. Behind me was a circle of blue light. Something urged me to turn back, to climb the stairs and make away. It was impossible. Terror of that unseen watching thing behind the altar raced me onward like a whirlwind. I passed through the circle. I was in a way that stretched on into dim distance between the rows of carven cylinders. Here and there the red trees arose. Between them rolled the stone burrows. And now I could take in the amazing ornamentation that clothed them. They were like the trunks of smooth-skinned trees that had fallen and had been clothed with high-reaching, fantastic orchids. Yes, those cylinders were like that, and more. They should have gone out with the dinosaurs. They were monstrous. They struck the eyes like a blow, and they passed across the nerves like a rasp. And nowhere was there sight or sound— of a living thing. There were circular openings in the cylinders, like the opening in the temple of the stairway through which I had run. I passed through one of them. I was in a long, bare, vaulted room whose curving sides half-closed twenty feet over my head, leaving a wide slit that opened into another vaulted chamber above. I saw nothing in the room save the same mottled reddish light of the temple. I stumbled. Still, I could see nothing. But my skin prickled and my heart stopped. There was something on the floor over which I had tripped. I reached down and my hand touched a thing, cold and smooth, that moved under it. I turned and ran out of that place. I was filled with a sick loathing that had in it something of madness. I ran on and on, blindly, wringing my hands, weeping with horror. When I came to myself, I was still among the stone cylinders and red trees. I tried to retrace my steps to find the temple, for now I was more than afraid. I was like a new soul panic-stricken with the first terrors of hell. But I could not find the temple, and the haze began to thicken and glow, the cylinders to shine more brightly. Suddenly I knew that it was dusk in my own world above, and that the thickening of the haze was the signal for the awakening of whatever things lived in the pit. I scrambled up the sides of one of the burrows. I hid behind a twisted nightmare of stone. Perhaps, I thought, there was a chance of remaining hidden until the blue lightened, the peril passed, and I could escape. There began to grow round me a murmur. It was everywhere, and it grew and grew into a great whispering. I peeped from the side of the stone down into the street. I saw lights passing and repassing, more and more lights. They swam out of the circular doorways, and they thronged the street. The highest were eight feet above the pave, the lowest perhaps two. They hurried, they sauntered, they bowed, they stopped and whispered, and there was nothing under them. Nothing under them? breathed Anderson. No, he went on. That was the terrible part of it. There was nothing under them. Yet certainly the lights were living things. They had consciousness, volition. What else? I do not know. They were nearly two feet across, the largest. Their center was a bright nucleus, red-blue-green. This nucleus faded off gradually into a misty glow that did not end abruptly. It, too, seemed to fade off into nothingness, but a nothingness that had under it a somethingness. I strained my eyes, trying to grasp this body into which the lights merged and which one could only feel was there, but could not see. And all at once... I grew rigid. Something cold and thin like a whip had touched my face. I turned my head. Close behind were three of the lights. They were a pale blue. They looked at me, if you can imagine lights that are eyes. Another whiplash gripped my shoulder. Under the closest light came a shrill whispering. I shrieked. Abruptly, the murmuring in the street ceased. I dragged my eyes from the pale blue globe that held them and looked out. The lights in the streets were rising by myriads to the level of where I stood. There they stopped and peered at me. They crowded and jostled as though they were a crowd of curious people on Broadway. That was the horrible part of it. I felt a score of the lashes touch me. I shrieked again. Then, darkness, and a sensation of falling through vast depths. When I awoke to consciousness, I was again in the great place of the stairway, lying at the foot of the altar. All was silent. There were no lights, only the mottled red glow. I jumped my feet and ran toward the steps. Something jerked me back to my knees. And then I saw that around my waist had been fastened a yellow ring of metal. From it hung a chain, and this chain passed up over the lip of the high ledge. I reached into my pockets for my knife to cut through the ring. It was not there. I had been stripped of everything, except one of the canteens that I had hung around my neck, and which I supposed they had thought was part of me. I tried to break the ring. It seemed alive. It writhed in my hands and drew itself closer around me. I pulled at the chain. It was immovable. There came over me, in a flood consciousness of the unseen thing above the altar, and I groveled at the foot of the slab. Think! Alone, in that place of strange light, with the brooding ancient horror above me. A monstrous thing, a thing unthinkable, an unseen thing that poured forth horror. After a while I gripped myself. Then I saw beside one of the pillars a yellow bowl filled with a thick white liquid. I drank it. If it killed, I did not care. But its taste was pleasant, and as I drank, strength came back to me with a rush. Clearly, I was not to be starved. The people of the pit, whatever they were, had a conception of human needs. And now, once more, the reddish mottled gleam began to deepen. Again outside arose the humming, through the circle that was the entrance to the temple came streaming the globes. They ranged themselves in ranks until they filled the temple. Their whispering grew into a chant, a cadenced whispering chant that rose and fell, rose and fell, while to its rhythm the globes lifted and sank, lifted and sank. All the night the lights came and went, and all that night the chants sounded as they rose and fell. At the last I felt myself only an atom of consciousness in the sea of that whispering, an atom that rose and fell with the bowing globes. I tell you that even my heart pulsed in unison with them, and the red glow faded, the lights streamed out. The whispering died. I was again alone, and I knew that again day had begun in my own world. I slept. When I awoke I found beside the pillar another bowl of the white liquid. I scrutinized the chain that held me to the altar. I began to rub two of the links together. I did this for hours. When the red began to thicken, there was a ridge worn in the links. Hope rushed up within me. There was, then, a chance to escape. With the thickening, the lights came again. All through that night, the whispering chant sounded, and the globes rose and fell. The chant seized me. It pulsed through me until every nerve and muscle quivered to it. My lips began to quiver. They strove like a man trying to cry out in a nightmare. And at last they too were whispering, whispering the evil chant of the people of the pit. My body bowed in unison with the lights. I was, God forgive me, in movement and sound, one with these nameless things. While my soul sank back, sick with horror, but powerless. And as I whispered, I saw them. Saw the things under the lights great, transparent, snail like bodies, dozens of waving tentacles stretching from them, little round, gaping mouths under the luminous, seeing globes. They were like specters of inconceivably monstrous slugs. And as I stared, still bowing and whispering, the dawn came, and they streamed to and through the entrance. They did not crawl or walk. They floated. They floated, and were gone. I did not sleep. I worked all that day at my chain. By thickening of the red, I had worn it a sixth through and all that night, under their spell, I whispered and bowed with the pit people, joining in their chant to the thing that brooded above me. Twice again the red thickened and lessened, and the chant held me. And then, on the morning of the fifth day, I broke the worn links. I was free. I ran to the stairway. With eyes closed, I rushed up and past the unseen horror behind the altar ledge and was out upon the bridge. I crossed the span and began the ascent of the stairway. "'Can you think what it is to climb straight up the verge of a cleft world, with hell behind you? Well, worse than hell was behind me, and terror rode me. The city of the pit—' had long been lost in the blue haze before I knew that I could climb no more. My heart beat upon my ears like a sledge. I fell before one of the little caves, feeling that here at last was sanctuary. I crept far back within it and waited for the haze to thicken. Almost at once it did so, and from far below me came a vast and angry murmur. Crouching at the back of the cave, I saw a swift light go shooting up through the blue haze, then die down and break, and as it dimmed and broke, I saw myriads of the globes that are the eyes of the pit-people swing downward into the abyss. Again and again the light pulsed, and the globes rose with it and fell. They are hunting me. They knew I must be somewhere still on the stairway— "'or, if hiding below, I must sometime take to the stairway to escape.' "'The whispering grew louder, more insistent. "'There began to pulse through me a dreadful desire to join in the whispering as I had done in the temple. "'Something told me that if I did, the sculptured figures could no longer save me, that I would go out and down again into the temple forever.' I bit my lips through and through to still them, and all that night the beam shot up through the abyss, the globe swung, and the whispering sounded, and I prayed to the power of the caves and the sculptured figures that still had power to guard them. He paused. His strength was going. Then, almost in a whisper, I thought— what were the people who had carved them? Why had they built their city around the verge, and why had they set that stairway in the pit? What had they been to the things that dwelt at the bottom, and what use had the things been to them that they should live beside their dwelling-place? That there had been some purpose was certain. No work so prodigious as the stairway would have been undertaken otherwise. But what was the purpose? And why was it that those who had dwelt about the abyss had passed away ages gone, and the dwellers in the abyss still lived? He looked at us. I could find no answer. I wonder if even I am dead I shall know. I doubt it. Dawn came as I wondered, and with it, silence. I drank what was left of the liquid in my canteen, crept from the cave, and began to climb again. That afternoon my legs gave out. I tore off my shirt and made from it pads for my knees and coverings for my hands. I crawled upward. I crawled up and up and again I crept into one of the caves and waited until again the blue thickened, the shaft of light shot through it, and the whispering came. But now there was a new note in the whispering. It was no longer threatening. It called and coaxed. It drew. A terror gripped me. There come upon me a mighty desire to leave the cave and go out where the light swung, to let them do with me as they pleased, carry me where they wished. The desire grew. It gained fresh impulse with every rise of the beam, until at last I vibrated with the desire as I had vibrated to the chant in the temple. My body was a pendulum. Up would go the beam, and I would swing toward it. Only my soul kept steady. It held me fast to the floor of the cave, and it placed a hand over my lips to still them. And all that night I fought with my body and lips against the spell of the pit people. Dawn came. Again I crept from the cave and faced the stairway. I could not rise. My hands were torn and bleeding, my knees in agony. I forced myself upward, step by step. After a while my hands became numb, the pain left my knees. They deadened. Step by step my will drove my body upward upon them and time after time I would sink back within myself to oblivion, only to wake again and find that all the time I had been steadily climbing upward. And then, only a dream of crawling up infinite stretches of steps, memories of dull horror while hidden within caves, with thousands of lights pulsing without, and whisperings that called and called me. Memory of a time when I awoke to find that my body was obeying the call, and had carried me halfway out between the guardians of the portals, while thousands of gleaming globes rested in the blue haze and watched me. Glimpses of bitter fights against sleep, and always a climb up and up along infinite distances of steps. THAT LED FROM A LOST abaddon TO A PARADISE OF BLUE SKY AND OPEN WORLD. AT LAST, A CONSCIOUSNESS OF CLEAR SKY CLOSE ABOVE ME, THE LIP OF THE PIT BEFORE ME. MEMORY OF PASSING BETWEEN THE GREAT PORTALS OF THE PIT AND OF STEADY WITHDRAWAL FROM IT dreams of giant men with strange peaked crowns and veiled faces who pushed me onward and onward and held back pulsing globules of light that sought to draw me back to a gulf wherein planets swam between the branches of red trees that had snakes for crowns. And then a long, long sleep, how long God alone knows, in a cleft of rocks. An awakening, to see far in the north, the beam still rising and falling, the light still hunting, the whispering high above me calling, and knowledge that no longer had they power to draw me. Again, crawling on dead arms and legs that moved, that moved, like the ancient mariner's ship, without volition of mine. And then, your fire, and this... Safety. The crawling man smiled at us for a moment, then quickly fell asleep. That afternoon we struck camp, and, carrying the crawling man, started back south. For three days we carried him, and still he slept. And on the third day, still sleeping, he died. We built a great pile of wood, and we burned his body as he had asked. We scattered his ashes about the forest with the ashes of the trees that had consumed him. "'It must be a great magic, indeed, that can disentangle those ashes and draw them back in a rushing cloud to the pit he called accursed. "'I do not think that even the people of the pit have such a spell, no. "'But Anderson and I did not return to the Five Peaks to see.' And if the gold does stream out between the five peaks of the Han Mountain like putty from a clenched fist, there it may remain for all of us. The End of the People of the Pit